Last Sunday, we talked about St. Augustine's program for endowing the church once for all with a solid foundation that all rational people could accept. We cited various authorities, all of whom agreed that it was St. Augustine who put Christianity on a new foundation, the shift being to a new emphasis on philosophy made necessary by the new and sudden growth of the Christian community to a world church. Christ had said that his sheep would hear his voice and no others. But now the church, following the emperor's example rather than the Lord's, would speak with a voice that all the world must hear. We have said that Oregon's case proved that where there is no revelation, there is no certitude. But we've also noted that Augustine's problem is the same as Oregon's, to achieve certitude, if possible, without revelation. We should state at the outset that we are perfectly aware of various degrees of transport in Augustine's writings, but they are not really revelation. Many have pointed out that when Augustine's logical quest bogs down, he leaps the gap by a kind of inspiration. He anticipates his answer, says Grabman, with a purely spiritual farsightedness, so that he doesn't really have to work them out. Where his logic fails, according to Professor Coulton, Augustine wins through by sheer force of character. Call it what you want, it is not revelation. The most ecstatic, uh, most inspired, if you would call it that, period of Augustine's life were the weeks he spent at Cassiciacum culminating in what many consider to be his final conversion. Yet of that period, Combes writes, he prays, he meditates, he idles, but especially he chats. And these conversations, minutely recorded by stenographers, show that the ideas of Cicero, Plato, and Plotinus still occupy even in his spirit the foremost position, leaving only a little corner for Christian ideas. Yet this was at the peak of his inspiration. We must not forget that various types of ecstasy were carefully cultivated in the schools of rhetoric in which Augustine had been raised, and we meet them in all his writings. The formal ecstasies and intellectual insights of the schoolmen are not real revelation, and Augustine knew it. In all fairness to him, we must report that he would infinitely have preferred revelation to philosophy. Not only did he feel guilty about what he was doing, but it was only after long years of agonizing struggle and indecision that he at last, painfully and with heartbreaking reluctance, closed the book on revelation, or recognized that it could not be open. What a difference there is, he cries in the city of God, between the ambiguities of the academicians and the certainty of the Christian faith. And yet it is the academy that he brings into the church. And without Plato, he informs us, his own conversion would never have taken place. The Confessions is the story of a man who all his life hungered for revelation. You know, he keeps saying, here are my ears, God, speak to them. But in the end, he had to settle for second best. He tells us of the founder of the state religion of heathen Rome, of the great and good Numa, who, though he did his best, had for inspiration to resort to hydromancy and the arts of divination. He was compelled to do this, says Augustine, compulsus, because the poor man had no prophet of God nor any holy angel sent to him. End of quote. Divination was a poor substitute for prophecy, you see, yet Numa had no other choice. And wasn't that Augustine's position exactly? In his quest for certainty, he tells us, he consulted the astrologers and the soothsayers with a determination that moved even his superstitious friends to merriment. And he continued to seek out the astrologers even after he was a catechumen awaiting baptism uh, in his thirties. All his life he snatched at straws. He'd condoned such practices as the use of sortes even after he was a bishop, that is, divination by the random opening of the scripture, and he, the visiting of oracles. He says if they're not desirable, at least they're better than nothing. A strange attitude. 
The yearning of Augustine for revelation and the inadequacy of all substitutes is beautifully brought out in his last conversation with his mother. Here these two saintly people bear their souls, and what they both wish for is above all else a real revelation. What is it like when God really speaks, they ask each other, when he alone speaks, not by any intermediary, but by himself, that we may hear his word not through any tongue of flesh or angel's voice, nor in the sound of thunder, nor in the dark riddle of the similitude, but we might hear the very one whom we only love in these other things, that we might hear his very self without these. And if this thing could be continued on, so that life might be forever like that one moment of understanding for which we now sighed, would not that be entering into thy master's joy? And when shall that ever be, they ask. That's the end of the quote. In this moment of frank self-revelation, Augustine admits that what he really wants is not revelation that comes by preaching of men or even of angels, nor that comes through the laborious uh, intellectual demonstrations, the dark riddle of the enigma and so forth, nor in the manifestations of God in nature, that isn't good enough, the voice of thunder, nor even in the mystic flash of insight, which both he and his mother experienced in that conversation together. For even then they still sighed after the real thing, and they both wondered what it might be like. In the 270 letters of Augustine that have survived, we see the man at work trying to answer the great questions of doctrine and administration that should have been answered by the head of the church. Letters pour into him from all over the Christian world, and he answers them as best he can. He never refers the questioners to any higher authority, even though the cases are sometimes very serious and have nothing at all to do with his diocese. Nor does he personally ever appeal to any higher authority, either in administrational or in doctrinal matters, however important they may be. This is not surprising if one knows the situation. Now we're going to quote from Duchesne again, the great Catholic historian. If there had been in the church of the fourth century, he says, a central authority, recognized and active, it would have offered a means of solution. But it was not so. He is speaking here, you see, of administrative solutions. But it goes just as well for doctrinal. To continue Duchesne, there was not there a guiding power, he says, and effective expression of Christian unity. The papacy, such as the West knew it later on, was still to be born. In the place which it did not yet occupy, the state installed itself without hesitation, and we might add without objection. The Christian religion became the religion of the emperor, not only in the sense of being professed by him, but in the sense of being directed by him. End of quote. Many of Augustine's letters illustrate this point admirably but we can't go into them. Let's consider briefly only the doctrinal perplexity, the complete lack of leadership and direction in the church that is apparent in the confessions. For 20 years at least, nearer to 25, Augustine was never able to find out just what the Christian church believed. He tells us how he went to school as a boy and made fun of the things his mother believed, how he joined a strange Christian sect, the Manichaeans, which enjoyed enormous popularity at the time, and for once in his life he thought he knew certainty, looking for certainty, you see. When he left the Manichaeans, he said the bottom of his world fell out and he spent the ensuing years in black despair. He joined a group then calling themselves the Sancti, a Christian sect again, large numbers of whom, he says, were living secretly in Rome. And all the time his mother kept after him to return to the church of his birth, but this he could not do because their arguments couldn't stand up to those of the Manichaeans, let alone of the schools. And from the Manichaeans, in a vague way, he still hoped for light. When he finally became a catechumen, ready for baptism upon the urging of his mother and St. Ambrose, 
who was easily the most important leader of the church at the time. He still didn't know what to believe, but he says he was doubting everything, tossed back and forth in it all. In listening to Ambrose, he said he gradually came to the conviction that if the Catholic Church did not teach the truth, at least it did not teach the kind of error I had formerly attributed to it. Ambrose was another man with a thoroughly non-Christian education who joined the church by compulsion late in life. It was he, says Augustine, who, quote, drew aside the mystic veil, laying open spiritually those things which, if taken literally, seemed to teach perversity. He's talking about the scripture, mustn't take it literally. Perversity to whom? To Augustine and his fellow skeptics of the schools. Ambrose taught them that it was not necessary to believe all that childish, literal-minded stuff that was so unplatonic in order to be a Christian. But why had he not known that from the first? He was born and raised in a by a Christian, a singularly devout Christian parents. Now he was over 30 years old and had studied Christianity all his life. He was anything but stupid. Why had he been so thoroughly convinced that the church accepted the scriptures literally, as he and the other intellectuals never could? Simply because the church did accept the scriptures literally in those days. Augustine says he could never accept the Bible until he realized that it was a double book. He says so it might receive all in its bosom its open bosom, and through a narrow passage waft through to the some few, that is, those who really understood it. After this discovery, he tells us, a great hope began to dawn on him, namely that the church did not teach, as he always had thought it did, that God is bounded by the figure of a human body. End of quote. Well, why was he so convinced all those years that that was the teaching of the church? What had his earnest Christian parents and teachers been telling him about God all through his youth and adolescence if at the age of 30 he is still absolutely convinced that the Christians believe God had a body? He says, gradually the hope began to dawn on him that they might not believe that in this when he was 31, mind you. It was the schools that taught him to doubt that. The Platonic God was the foundation of the current pagan instruction, and from it Augustine never freed himself. What he did free himself from was the beliefs of his mother. And I cannot doubt that things which he taught his mother believed, after he had constant and careful instruction from her from infancy to manhood, were what she and her church really did believe. After describing the immense relief that came to him when he finally realized that he might become a Christian without giving up any of his philosophical ideas, Augustine says that he still did not have the vaguest idea how he should think about God. Couldn't the church tell him? Didn't Ambrose know? To make a very long story very short, he finally got his answer, he says, only when God procured for him, as he puts it, certain books of the Platonists, not Christians at all. But he still thought that Christ, as a man, as is Christ, you see, had a human soul and mind. While Alepius, his inseparable bosom friend, he said, thought the Catholics had a very different idea about Christ, that no human mind was to be ascribed to him. See, lots of people believe this about Christ, lots of people believe that about Christ, nobody knows what to believe. Where is the leadership of the church? Who could really tell him about God? Like Oregon, he searched hard but found no one. In the end, he had to work out the solution all for himself, and that's the glorious work with which the scholars credit him, from the ground up, and the church was only too glad to accept his solution. Augustine, says Tomasius, is the true founder of the speculative theology of the Trinity. This is an example. That doctrine which was to remain the most active branch of philosophy and theology for 15 centuries, that subject rather, Convinced that the highest blessedness depended on a true and complete grasp of this mystery, Augustine exerted prodigies of energy and genius in trying to solve it. For 15 years he labored away at his great thesis on the Trinity, without, says Tomasius, ever reaching a satisfactory conclusion. Fifteen years, mind you. 
Beginning with axiom number one of the schools, the absolute oneness and immateriality of God, he tries to work out a threeness out of it by a series of elaborate analogies with the human mind, only to reach the final conclusion that if such a procedure furnishes an inadequate answer, it is at least an answer. Impar imago, said imago. The Father and the Son cannot really be different persons, he says, yet neither can they be entirely the same. And then he says, since the Father has a Son, he cannot very well be the Father, the Son can, you see. Again, Augustine wants the Holy Ghost to be a person, says Thomasius, but his philosophical training will not allow it. He certainly, uh, here certainly, is a place where revelation would be helpful. Its intellectual substitutes break down at every point. We say there are three persons, Augustine sums it up, not because there are three, but because we must say something. Non ut illa decorator, said ne tacorator. Thus, Thomasius concludes, this attempt carried out with such labor and perspicacity, and we might add for so many years, by the great teacher of the church, is only a proof that the Trinity is not to be proven in such a way, end of quote. This is the same conclusion we reached regarding Augustine, or rather Oregon. And the confession of Augustine to a friend in a letter reads exactly like Oregon's frequent admission in the first principles. The friend had asked why, since the Trinity are all in, in all things inseparable, Christ alone took on a human body. This is such a supremely difficult question, the saint replies, and such a very important matter that it cannot be settled by a sententia, that's an opinion of his, nor can we be sure of solving it by an investigation. I make so bold, therefore, in writing you to indicate what I have in mind rather than giving an explanation, that you might judge the thing according to your own best understanding. Where is the, the certainty there, you see? Augustine, as says Aloysius Grabman, the great, uh, rather Martin Grabman, the great Austrian Catholic scholar, Augustine confronted face to face the hardest questions of Christian doctrine, those which have presented the greatest challenge to the human mind, and for years and for decades he worked away trying to solve them. And that authority then lists the most important of these unsolved problems and says in these questions and others he has largely failed to work through to a full clarity of understanding. And if dark and difficult passages of law on those themes are found in many places in his writings, he has at least showed the way for later theology. Wilhelm Christ, in the best-known standard history of Greek literature, writes that in the fourth century, Hellenism forced Christianity to go to its schools. Christianity, quoting now, was squeezed into a system congenial to pagan Greek rationalist thought, and in that safe, protective suit of armor was able to face up to the world, but in the process it had to sacrifice its noblest moral and spiritual forces, end of quote. How aptly this recalls Father Combe's declaration that Augustine wanted to give the church a doctrine so strong that she would never again have anything to fear from her enemies. The armor was provided, and at what a price. As to the administrative problems with which Augustine wrestled, we can do no better than quote from a very recent study by the learned English Jesuit Father Bly. St. Augustine, he says, provides the perplexing spectacle of an extremely wise and holy man who began by condemning the use of force against heretics, but changed his mind after observing the good effects of coercive measures taken without his approval. Reverence for Augustine, he concludes, forbids me to say that his justification of persecution was wrong, but its fruits were evil in the centuries which followed, and we may suspect that if he had had as much experience to reflect on as we have, Augustine would have reverted to his first opinion. Here are two able Catholic scholars who have described St. Augustine, the one as toiling away for whole decades trying to work out the basic problems of doctrine and failing to come out with a clear solution, and the other as doing the best in the light of his limited experience to work out a basic policy of church government with unfortunate results. 
The Latter-day Saints have always maintained that guidance both in doctrinal and administrational matters can come to the church only by revelation. We couldn't ask for a better case to prove it than that of St. Augustine, precisely because he is such a good and great man. The better man he is, the better he illustrates the point, which is that no man, no matter how good, wise, hard-working, devoted, well-educated he might be, can give us certainty without revelation. In Father Bly's opinion, time has not vindicated Augustine's opinions. It has shown that we can only trust the prophets.